and welcome to episode 73 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with 11 years experience in Brazil and China. This week, I spoke to Kendra Pierre-Lewis, a freelance climate change reporter. Kendra has had a super interesting career, and I love any story like hers where the person kind of gradually finds their way into journalism after doing a bunch of different stuff, instead of going into college at 18 years old, already knowing they want to be a journalist. The later start certainly didn't hold her back any, and she went on to work for Popular Science, The New York Times, and most recently at the podcasting outfit Gimlet. I always say it on the show, but I really do hope journalists, especially those earlier in their career, learn new things from this podcast. I think Kendra really drops a lot of knowledge in this episode, including what kind of mentor relationship she had early on in her career, how she figured out how to do an international reporting trip, and even a helpful tip on how to do your taxes as a freelancer. And for the experienced journalists out there, we talk some real inside baseball of how things work behind the scenes in certain publications that typically you'd only hear over a beer after work. Oh, and of course, Kendra also discusses her views on bear sex and mayonnaise. So plenty of laughs, too. Something for everyone in this episode. This episode is a long one, as they so often are these days, but it's just too full of good stuff to cut. I know in journalism or writing, you're not supposed to be precious, and you're supposed to make the difficult cuts or kill your babies, as they say. But this is a long-form podcast, so I'll save that for my day job. One last thing. If you're a dedicated listener, you'll probably notice this episode is really, really late. Like, I basically skipped an entire month without an episode. Life has gotten very busy for me, and I was traveling for most of February, so at some point it just becomes impossible to find the time. But no matter how late, I am committed to keeping the show going. My goal is to still put out 12 episodes this year, one for every month. They just might not be that regular. So thanks for sticking with the show, and I suggest you subscribe to it wherever you get podcasts, so that it'll just pop up in your feed whenever I do publish an episode. And now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Kendra Pierre-Lewis, a freelance climate reporter. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Kendra. Thanks so much for having me, Jake. So to warm up a little bit, if you could describe where you are, both geographically in the space around you, and tell us a little bit about the past week or so of work, what it's been like for you. So I am in the best borough of New York City. I'm in Queens, <laughs> in my apartment, in my office. And behind me, I guess, is a bookcase with too many books, because that's what I do, is I just, I buy books, and then I put them on my shelf, and I don't read them. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then I, like, finally read one, and then I buy three more to replace the one that I've read. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, this week has been pretty chill. I filed two stories kind of last week. And so this week I picked up two more actually. And I, I filed two stories last week and I pitched two. And this week, two of the ones that I pitched kind of came through. And then I've been gathering wool on this book project that I've been working on for far too long, according to my agent. <laughs> uh, um, and I'm, one of the stories that I'm working on is about Hollywood and climate change. And so I've been watching something like I don't know, an ungodly number of episodes of the CBS political drama, Madam Secretary, because it has a lot of climate change themes in it. Oh, wow. And uh, one of the perks of, you know, freelancing is you get to sit down and just be like, I am going to watch 
all six seasons of this show <laughs> over the next three weeks. I'm just, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah, just try not to calculate how much you're making per hour of TV watch, but yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. And then we'll get more into what you do right now later on in the podcast. But a big aim of the podcast is to let listeners know how you got to where you are today. And to tell that story, I like to start way back at the beginning with where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and also, if anything, planted the seed of interest early on in what you do now, either journalism or climate or something else. Sure. So I was born about 10 miles from here, also in Queens, uh, but a different part. And I grew up in Queens. Oh, wow. And I, <laughs> yeah, I'm that rare breed of a native New Yorker. Yeah, I lived here kind of until I went to college. So like my entire childhood was spent here. I definitely did not think I was going to become a journalist or anything involving writing. I was always good at writing and I loved writing as a kid. I was always like keeping journals. But very much like my parents are from Haiti, very much first generation, <laughs> you know, immigrant parent ethos. I was going to be a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> like that was what was going to happen. And then when I went away to college, I thought I was going to do computer science. I briefly majored in computer science mm -hmm. and I hated it. It's kind of funny now because we're like, we're in 2022, but at the time I was just sort of like, I can't envision a future where I never get to get up from my desk. Mm -hmm. And then... I sort of eventually graduated and realized it's like all jobs now, <laughs> unless you're working like a manual job, you're just sort of stuck in front of a computer, but young me didn't quite realize that yet. And so I spent kind of my twenties really bouncing around jobs and careers. So what, what did you major in in the end? Did you say? Oh, I didn't. In the end, I ended up majoring in economics for reasons that I'm not proud of, which is it had the fewest required courses. So I could, uh, <laughs> sure. I could get out of there in a timely fashion. But kind of towards the end of my college experience, my junior, my senior year, kind of two things in hindsight kind of happened. I ended up taking a class in magazine journalism just by chance. And I ended up sort of falling in love with the subject of sustainability. I took a, several courses on sustainable development. And so that sort of began this idea about sustainability. But the idea of like taking that concept and marrying it to writing, I would say that took like 10 years. Okay, wow. Yeah, what, what are you, just give us a little bit of a taste of what was going on with you during that time. Oh, yeah. So um, during that time, I was doing what every parent does not want their 20-something child to do, <laughs> um, which is I was holding down a lot of weird jobs. I was boomeranging in and out of their house. I worked customer service for a while. I spent, I think, two years working for a test preparation company in their corporate offices and then teaching SAT and a couple of other test prep courses on the side. I moved to France for a while and taught English, um, which oh, wow. I was not qualified to do, but I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I eventually ended up going to grad school for sustainable development, thinking that maybe I would get into international development work. And unfortunately, ironically, came away from the program thinking very much like, oh, we need to develop the United States because so much of... The consumption that happens in the United States trickles down to impacts in other nations. So it really felt like we need to get U.S. consumption in check. So I graduated with that degree right around the time of the financial collapse because my timing couldn't have been better. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so I spent more time sort of hopping around jobs. And some actually after grad school, somewhere in the middle of that, after, grad school was really the point where I realized that I could write because my 
professors kept commenting on how my papers were so well written. And they kept saying it was so accessible. So I knew that they meant that I wasn't writing like an academic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Sure. And so I started, it was kind of the beginning of like the internet publication, you know, like the internet first publication. So I started freelancing for a couple of like probably not well structured and definitely poorly paid like sciencey blogs. I remember Newsweek was still like decent at that point and they had just gotten bought out by IBT and IBT had like a weird offshoot that was like digital only, like it was separate from the Newsweek brand. And so I started doing a little bit of freelancing for that other brand. And then I was at an internship and got an idea for a book. So I pitched a book and and a small publisher in Brooklyn actually said yes. And so that's how I got my first kind of, weirdly enough, like I got my first book deal before I ever got published in sort of a big mainstream news outlet. (laughs) So my, my, I joke that I did everything in the wrong order. So I like, I got this small book deal, published a book, use that to get myself membership into the Society of Environmental Journalists. And that's how I got a mentor, a journalism mentor. And that's really when I began freelancing on the side of my day job. At that point, I think I was working for an affordable housing nonprofit doing green stuff. Oh, wow. Yeah. And this was all on the side, the rest, the journalism. The writing was all on the side, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Busy. (laughs) Not sleeping a lot. And um, yeah, so I was working this day job and I was really beginning to freelance for real at the time in publications you would have actually have heard of and kind of gave myself a year to either find a job in journalism, make enough from freelancing to start transitioning into full-time journalism, and if either of those didn't pan out, to go to J school. And so the first two did not pan out. So I applied to journalism school, um, and I ended up getting into MIT's graduate program in science writing, which is a one-year program just for science writing, science journalism. And by that point, was that most all of what you were doing anyway, or um, what were you writing? Yeah, so I knew I wanted to do environment. I didn't know I wanted to do climate, but I knew I really wanted to do environmentally stuff. And at that point, this was like 2014 when I was really thinking about applying, and I got in, I went to MIT from 2015 to 2016. And most of these programs in environmental journalism had sort of disappeared during the Great Recession, And so there was a limit to how many programs there were. And MIT's program was not specifically focused on climate, but it was generic science. But the way it was structured was that if you had an interest, you could go down that rabbit hole on your own. And the program itself actually required that you take classes within the broader university, in addition to like the ones that were specific to journalism. And so that meant that I could take other classes that were environmentally based. And so I knew that that was an option. And so that was kind of the route that I ended up picking. Okay, cool. And uh, what sorts of publications were you writing for up to that point? I mean, big ones we've heard of. Yeah. Newsweek, back when they were, I don't know if they're still in print, like have a print copy, but before they had completely sort of ruined their reputation, basically. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I know what they are now. (laughs) Um, It was kind of my first big one. And then Hakai, which is like, a small nonprofit publication out of British Columbia that does a lot with water. Um, I got something in the Washington Post. That was kind of my first, like, really big one. Oh, and then Modern Farmer. Those were all, like, the ones that felt like a really big deal. And, and that's around the time I started writing for Vice. I did a story for Vice, and I started doing some stories for Sierra. 
Wow. That's a lot. Were you just cold emailing editors or how did you go about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't know. it. I mean, I know it's funny to be like, oh, I grew up in New York City, but I mean, it's a really big city and I didn't know anyone really in media. Like those aren't, you know, those aren't the circles that I run it or ran in. I guess I do now. But (laughs) But at the time, I didn't have like journalism friends. You know, I had friends that like, I don't know, worked for the Federal Reserve Bank of New York or like, you know, normal jobs. (laughs) Right. And in turn, I always like to ask people who have written a book how much you think that helped you along the way. Is it like people would be like, oh, she wrote a book, we should pay attention to her, or... I think the biggest thing is it got me into SEJ, Society of Environmental Journalism. I think absent the book, I didn't have the clips that would have gotten me into it as an organization. And I think a lot of journalism organizations are either directed to like working writers who have like a proof of published history or students and I wasn't a student and I didn't have like this long catalog of published history yet so I don't think I had the clips that would have gotten me in there and SEJ was super helpful because they gave me this mentor Erica Gies and she was lovely she would answer all of my like chaotic emails like (laughs) this editor sent me this what do I tell them back because like I don't know how it is for other people but I knew the big stuff there's this book called the science writers handbook and it sort of walks you through the steps that you need to know like here's how you pitch a science story here's how you do x y and z but what I really needed was like (laughs) it's gonna sound horrible but like I needed someone to help me understand humans (laughs) 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 and that's where like she was like super super helpful like it was like the person would be like, oh, this, when an editor says this, this is what it actually means. When an editor says this, this is like a, a sane way to respond. Cool. Is she still working? What I don't know that I know her work. Mm-hmm. She's still working. She wrote a book called Water Always Wins. And she like, she still writes a ton. I know she writes for Kai. She's based in, I think she splits her time between San Fran and British Columbia. Cool. I don't know. For me, that was super important because I don't think, I th- we talk a lot about how journalism sort of runs on relationships. And I think she was the first person that sort of flagged that for me and kind of explained to me how it worked in that way. Okay, cool. And that, and so, yeah, her mentorship helps you find your way with freelancing, which eventually leads you to grad school. How was grad school? Did I mean, something you would recommend to other people? My specific program or like... Yeah, your specific program. Yeah, I think this is true regardless of whether you decide to go to MIT or you decide to go to a different institution. But I went in kind of in opposition to everything we learn about like what education is supposed to be about I guess because I was like older I went in very much being like I'm coming here because I need like the credentials to show that I know how to do science journalism but I'm also here because I need to get a job at the end of this experience and so I went in kind of very kind of I don't want to say aggressive because that oh I would say mercenary is it was kind of my (laughs) approach which is I'm like we had a news module in class where you had to do news stories and you had to like pitch a story and then you would get feedback on the pitch and then you would write the story and you'd get feedback on the writing. And I would pitch my homework. You know, like when I wrote a pitch, I would, you would turn it in as my homework assignment. And I knew at the time that Motherboard, which is like one of Vice's verticals, needed content. They didn't really have someone, I don't know if it's changed, but at the time they didn't really have someone on staff who could keep an eye on the embargoed science studies that were coming out and do kind of this, those kind of quick turnover stories. And that was what we were sort of doing with this news module in class. And so I would just take that pitch and I would like send the pitch in and then get the feedback, you know? <laughs> um, and so I didn't do the thing. I think some people can go into grad school and they will pitch it in and they'll t- treat it like a homework assignment and like it's hypothetical. And I like very much went into it like, well, what do I think could actually sell? 
And so that had two benefits. One is I actually sold my homework so like the entire time that I was, which is like the <laughs> only time I think it's acceptable to sell your homework. <laughs> <laughs> so I was sort of generating clips throughout even while I was in school. And on the other side, I was constantly getting two sets of feedback back, right? Which kind of helped me learn that different editors have different styles. And like, it got me really comfortable with being corrected because like if two people are giving you two different sets of feedback and they both have experience in this field and the feedback, it doesn't align hundred percent. Like sometimes there would be commonalities, but there were differences or stylistic differences or viewpoint differences. Then that tells you that like, Oh, like this really is a craft more than it's a science, right? Like this, it, there is a lot of like flexibility in it. And like, you shouldn't take it to heart. You know, like if you come back and it's a sea of comments, you know? I mean, that's useful to figure out early on. I mean, I still struggle with how subjective editing can be sometimes. And, you know, we all get angry with our editors. So it's good to have a bit <laughs> of perspective. So you come out of grad school. Mm-hmm. And do you come out with that, that job? When I was in grad school, Phil McKenna, who works for Inside Climate News, he'd gone to my program and he had spent a really long time as a full-time freelancer. And, you know, he had a full set of teeth. He had two kids. He is a fully functioning human. (laughs) And so we kind of had questions about how he had managed to be a full-time freelancer for so long. And he mentioned that one of the things he'd done a lot of was he applied to fellowships. And so I had applied to a fellowship for sort of early career journalists to send them overseas, um, journalists of color to send them overseas on reporting trips. And so I won a fellowship. So my program was a little bit weird where it sort of officially ended, like the coursework sort of ended uh, May of 2016. And then the summer he spent at an internship. So I interned at Inside Climate News. And then when my internship was over, I think my internship ended on a Friday. By Sunday, I had completely packed up my apartment, shoved everything into storage, and boarded a plane to Myanmar. Oh, wow. Because I had won a fellowship to go to Myanmar in India for a month. So what year was this? I went September of 2016. And I went to Myanmar. So the way the fellowship worked is you had to pitch stories based on locations you wanted to visit. And I had pitched Myanmar and India. So I went on my own. Like, it wasn't like a giant group fellowship. I went to India and Myanmar on my own. For Myanmar, I had a fixer for part of it. But for India, I was completely flying without a net (laughs) and had no clue what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I went to Myanmar. I was trying, I asked the year just because I was trying to remember what year I went. I think it must have been... 2013 and I did some reporting there and it was like a magical opening up time things are all getting better but by 2016 what was the situation there so when I was there anyway it was the beginnings of the Rohingya genocide but it hadn't really fully um it was right before it became sort of untenable it was still sort of in this period of liberalization so you could like get a cell phone it was before the military fully took over again. And were you there to do science stories or what were you aiming to do? Yeah, at that point I was fully on board with climate. I'd gone down the climate rabbit hole. The story was sort of like Myanmar is one of the worst geographically positioned. It's going to be very negatively impacted by climate change. And one could argue it already has, like because of 2007 Cyclone Nergis. And it was the story was sort of about the tension of trying to develop this country at this period while they also have to develop 
in the face of climate change because the whole point of liberalization of opening up was, you know, supposed to be about increasing economic opportunities, but they had to do this against this backdrop. And so I went to this place up in Chin State called Hakka because in a few years prior, I can't remember now, but a few years prior they'd had, they got hit by the remnants of a massive storm and they'd had catastrophic flooding and landslides. And so I kind of wanted to go up there and kind of report on that and sort of weave that into more broadly with like the impacts that the country was already seeing because of climate change and this interesting tension between needing to or wanting to develop, but also having to do so while the ground is in some cases literally eroding underneath your feet. Yeah, I mean, uh, these kind of huge reporting trips are, I don't know, always a bit like when I went to Myanmar, I was very like, uh, is this going to work? Is this not going to work? How did it go once you were there? So it was interesting. Um, When I was in Yangon, it was fine because they'd been open for long enough that they were like very used to seeing foreigners. It wasn't a really big deal. I ended up going to a temporary settlement on the outskirts of Yangon where a lot of people had moved up from the Delta after Nergius and I had a fixer at the time and we interviewed them. But just sort of generally going around, it was like very easy and there were, I don't want to say there were no difficulties, but it was super easy in a lot of ways and I had like friends of friends who knew people in Yangon, so I was able to like hook up with people. But when I went to Hakka, Hakka had only recently opened because to travel within Myanmar as a foreigner, only certain states are open to you. Um, so if I'd wanted to go, I can't remember what state the Rohingyas were, but if I'd wanted to go there, I wouldn't have been able to anyway. And then there was an added level where everyone who I talked to who had gone before me had basically been like, do not get a journalism visa, go as a tourist. If you get a journalism visa, they're just going to spy on you the whole time. so i was on a tourist visa and then i went up to Hakka, and like it's not a place where you go as a foreigner i don't know this kind of ties into one of the questions that you're going to ask me later but getting there isn't really easy like it you have to fly i think to this town called like cali from yangon and then you have to take a bus and in theory the bus should take like i don't know two or three hours but in reality it takes 12 to 14 because the roads are so bad (laughs) And everyone that was there was like, why are you here? Kind of like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like kids would sort of like stare at me because they were like, what is happening? It was interesting because Chin, most of Myanmar is Buddhist, you know, not all, but a lot of Myanmar is Buddhist. But Chin is Christian and Hakka is Christian and they have a relationship with countries outside of the United States because the way Christian ministries work. So like enough people had gone overseas that it wasn't completely like the feeling like I've never seen a foreigner before it was more like what are you doing here (laughs) if that makes any sense yeah so yeah no I mean I loved it so I went to Myanmar first and I was of the like month that I was overseas I was in Myanmar for a little bit longer than I was in India and it was actually a really rough transition I was surprised Hakka was rough in some ways you know like my also my phone didn't work very well up there and I don't know like it was a local phone but I'm not sure why so it was like rough and very sort of specific ways and also like the weird like you're a reporter and you don't know what you're doing and like scrambling around kind of ways but I really enjoyed my time in Mimar if like the ensuing years hadn't happened it was kind of like a feeling of like oh I would love to come back here for fun (laughs) Um, which is like currently not on the table for a myriad of reasons and India was just very different. It was a lot more, especially because I'd spent so much time up in the mountains. It was like, and then I landed in Delhi and I was immediately like a lot of people <laughs> hotter. The mountains weren't hot. Yangon was warm, but even Delhi was even hotter than Yangon. 
the transition from Myanmar to India was rougher than my transition from the States to Myanmar. Okay, wow. And in, in the end, did a month, I mean, I imagine it flew by, like, you know, a lot of stuff to fit into a month in an unfamiliar place. Yeah, it did. And that, and it was weird because I feel like, especially because I was on someone else's dime and, like, I'd never really worked with a fixer before. I, the whole thing, the scale of it felt like amorphous to me in a way that I hadn't experienced before. I kind of felt this pressure to always be working, you know? And so I think in the month I only took, like, really, I am, at one point I stopped at Inlay Lake because I was like, I can't come all the way here and not go to Inlay Lake. And that was, like, I think three days of vacation in a month, which in hindsight was ridiculous. <laughs> like, like, yeah. Yeah. Especially, the, I mean, reporting days are usually on reporting trips. You don't work eight hours. You work 12, 16 yeah. hours every waking minute often. I said three days vacation. I should have said, like, three days off, right? Like, where I was, like, not reporting or trying to set up sourcing or all of that. I'm just thinking back to when I went there, and I, I just remember traveling with a lot of U.S. dollars, and at the end, just, like, handing the fixer, like, an envelope of a bunch of U.S. dollars. Yeah, so, you know, it was really, this was such a funny thing. I forgot about this. So, Meemar was changing so rapidly that, like, all of the guidance I read was, like, bring a lot of cash. And so I rolled up to, with like, yeah, two grand in crisp US dollars because they were like, they'll reject your money if it's bent. Right. And it was all like t- almost all 20s and above. There were like a few small bills. And you know what? They have ATMs now. Or they did then. Like I didn't, I was like walking her. I was like a walking, please rob me sign. <laughs> and I didn't need to have that much cash on me. They had ATMs everywhere, even up in Hakka. It was like not a problem. Yeah, that's different from when I was there then. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, that's, I mean, that's an amazing experience. And then does that... Yeah. So I landed back in the States uh, yeah. like early October of, of 2016, graduated because the way MIT's program is structured, you graduate in October. It's really weird. Graduated and then took a family vacation to Benin, which is like where Haitians probably came from during the transatlantic slave trade, came back and then started really looking for a job. I know I interviewed with Popular Science around Christmas because it was like the day of their holiday party that they brought me in. And I started the week of January 17th. And I remember because that was the week Trump got inaugurated. Okay. So like (laughs) for a long time, I had never worked as a full-time journalist outside of the Trump administration. And what, what was the job? What was the description I think I was like the staff science writer or something. So basically I wrote eight to 10 stories a week on science-y topics, usually things that came out of the journals. I've jokingly called it boot camp, you know, because the volume was pretty high. But on the other hand, they like the latitude was wide. And if I could come up with an idea and if I could prove that I could like get it done, then I could get it done. There wasn't a lot of no's. And so eight to 10 sounds a lot and it is. But, like, there were definitely days where I, like, rolled up and I was like, today is World Turtle Day. And that's all I've got in me is a story about World Turtle Day. Like, <laughs> I don't have else. I will give you 300 words about, like, why sea turtles are in danger. And that is what you're getting. And a cute gallery of turtle pictures that I, like, found off of Creative Commons on Flickr. That is what you're getting from me today. Um, <laughs> because that's all that I have to give the world. But then on the other hand, you know... Like, this is actually kind of funny, but one of the first kind of big stories that I did for Pop Size, 
It was right after Pruitt had become head of the EPA and Pop Psy's position at the time, and again, this is 2017 at this point, so they're like now owned by a different corporation. Like I've no, like a lot of the people that I worked with aren't even there anymore. Like I have no idea what their editorial policy is now. But in 2017, the editorial policy was essentially that they were a day two shop. They kind of recognized our total full-time staff was something like 15 people or something. We were not huge. And so they sort of recognized that we couldn't compete with the big boys, but what we could do is add additional like nuance and context from some of the big stories. And so around that time, Pruitt had been nominated to head the EPA, and it was like this huge Scott Pruitt, and it was this huge kind of kerfuffle because he had famously sued the EPA like a number of times. And it was kind of this like irony thing. (laughs) And so I originally pitched it as a single story and then realized with like, this is what I'm talking about, the flexibility that with the cadence of my reporting, there was no way in heck that I was going to be able to finish this as a single story. And so I was like, how about we we conceive it as a series where like during the week I gather the wool and then on Friday I just like hunker down and I I hammer it out and we publish. And so it ended up being a four-part series on sort of like how the EPA became so contentious because I felt that that was important context that was kind of missing because when the EPA was first formed in 1970, like Richard Nixon was president. It, it was voted in Congress with bipartisan support. So how did we get from a place where everyone kind of agreed that clean water and clean air was a good thing to it becoming a quote-unquote liberal issue, right? And so that was kind of what the series was about. And as part of that, I did a visual story because I knew that there was this collection of photos that were government photos, which for anyone who is working for a newsroom that doesn't have a lot of money... Government photos are creative <laughs> commons, they're free, and they're like gold. <laughs> you can buy them, they're great. And a lot of them are on Flickr. <laughs> so I knew that in the 1970s, shortly after the EPA was formed, that they had commissioned documentary photographers to go across the country, sort of taking visual evidence of sort of what the country looked like before environmental policies had begun to take shape. And so I did a, a video essay, essentially, of like, this is what America looked like before the EPA. And it did bananas traffic. It broke over a million. I know that for a fact. And and then like a bunch of publications copied it (laughs) because this is kind of the downside (laughs) of Creative Commons photos, which is they could. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it was a video essay. So no, it was a visual essay, visual. So it was just like mostly a giant collection of photos. And the other benefit of government photos, if you're pressed for time, especially the ones on Flickr, they often have captions you can use. (laughs) (laughs) with credit like i'm not like a plagiarizer but like yeah 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 but still i mean that's uh, it's always big when your story hits a lot bigger than you expect it to um and especially when you're working that hard cranking out that many stories you know and you've only been on the job for like a month oh really wow yeah it was um february of 2017 because yeah when you hear some of those numbers i think of yeah early web days where the blogs just like churned out stuff that was completely you know not i'm not talking about popular science but you know you name it rolling stone whatnot an army of interns <laughs> free free reign to like just churn out stuff yeah yeah i will say that like nothing i did was like opinion or voicey i mean the beauty and this is i think one of the ways that science journalism is a little bit different is like I could open my inbox right now. I've not been as good this week about keeping on top of what studies are coming out, but I could open my inbox right now and find four or five studies that are decent and that I could cover. 
And the beauty of a science story is, I call it like a haiku. There's a very specific form to them. And if you're dealing with like a very non-contentious subject, it's basically you read the study, you find the lead author or the person who did most of the work on the study, and their email is on the study, so you don't have to do a lot of Googling to find them. Right. <laughs> like, it's right there. You email them, and you say, hey, I know your study's coming out on Thursday. Can you talk to me about your study? And because they want attention on their study, nine times out of ten, they say yes. So that's one source built in. It's the person who wrote the study. You talk to them. And then you find someone else who works in their field who didn't report on that study, you email them the study under embargo and say, hey, can you report on this? And the more you're doing this work and the more you have like a beat, the more people you know who can comment. And so it becomes much easier finding that second person. So nine times out of 10, if you're doing a very straightforward, non-controversial, and this again is where expertise comes in, which is I think where the boot camp aspect of it comes in because the cadence is such that like, <laughs> like you're becoming an expert even if it doesn't feel like it. So at that point, you sort of know it's a controversial study or not. And you know, like, okay, I just need one voice or like, oh, this is controversial. I should talk to X, Y, and Z number of voices. Like one isn't going to cut it. And the other reason that you want to talk to the outside voice is that, especially, and this is where building up relationships with academics comes into play, is that sometimes you'll send them a study and they will be like, they will tell you the dirt behind the story and like the study and like why you shouldn't do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is, again, super useful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, I guess my first reaction when you said eight to 10 stories a week was doing the math. I'm like, that's like 20 to 30 interviews a week. That's like a lot <laughs> of stuff to, to fit in. But uh, some you turn out like maybe you do four in a day so you can do the complicated one the next day and do just that one story or something like that. I don't know. I, I look back at that period and I don't even know how I did it. <laughs> at one point, I remember... Joe turned to me and he's like, you know, you're like a machine. And I was like, I just give me more coffee. <laughs> like, just give me more coffee. <laughs> and I don't even drink coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how did you feel about it? Were you liking it? Were you like going crazy? Were you all of the above? Yeah. So I was at PopSci for 10 months and by the time I left, I was burnt out and I kind of knew it. Like, like I knew I was heading to burnout. But for the most part, I liked it. And I don't know. I, I don't think it's sustainable over the long term. I really, I don't. But, and this is, I guess, where the boot camp analogy really comes in. I do think it was a really valuable learning experience. And overall, as a newsroom, especially since I've, you know, now experienced others, I liked my coworkers. I'm still friends with some of the people that I worked with at PopSci. The work was hard, but mostly the people were nice. And that makes a big difference in, I think, how you remember it, right? Like, you know, you've obviously done hard things and whatever. And, like, yeah. when you look back at those periods, if the whole context within which you did hard things felt fine, you don't remember the hard part as much. But, like, if the context was, like, demoralizing or demeaning in some way, even if the work wasn't that hard, the memory of it is, like, a lot more painful. Yeah. And so when I look back on it, it's mostly, like... With fondness, but then when I quit, I still remember this. All I needed to do was clean my room. And it took me two <laughs> and a half weeks <laughs> to get enough energy to like clean my room. I did nothing for <laughs> two and a half weeks. I just was like reading books and like laying in bed all day. Cause I was like done. Yeah, what precipitated you to leave? Like you were just like 
I'm burned out. I can't do this anymore. Or... A publication reached out and they offered me less work and more money. And I took it. And then I took it on a Friday. I told my manager on a Monday. We told the team on Tuesday. And Tuesday afternoon, I got an email from the New York Times asking me to come in for an interview. And so on Wednesday, I had this conversation. It was like a conversation because at a certain point, I don't know if your listeners know this, at a certain point in journalism, they never tell you that it's a job interview. They're just like, oh, would you like to have a cup of coffee? And it's like an informal thing, but it's not informal. It is like the pre-interview. It's like them sussing you out and making sure you're like not a complete weirdo and they actually want to work with you or like they might want to work with you. Wait, sorry, you said someone reached out and offered you more money for less work, but this wasn't the New York Times. No. So you'd quit your job (laughs) with the promise of a different job. Job, yeah. And at that time, the New York Times happened to reach out. Right. Literally the day after I told everyone I was quitting to join this other outlet, the New York Times reached out and was like, would you like to come in for a cup of coffee tomorrow morning? Wow. Great timing, yeah. (laughs) And so I... I did. I took the cup of coffee. You know, I was very transparent. I was like, basically, like, your timing can suck. Or I don't think I, I don't remember if I said it in the email or if I said it sort of when I showed up, which was just essentially like I literally just taken this other offer and that like the person ended the conversation essentially with like this job's not going to be here in a year. So like if you want it, like wink, wink, nudge, nudge, this conversation went well, I'd love to bring you in for a formal interview. That's not what she said, but that's like the subtext. Sure. And so I went back to my desk and did the ballsiest thing I'd ever done, which was essentially write an email that was like, I'm not going to start this other job and quit it. I was like, at that point, slated to start this other job in like a week and a half or two weeks. Unwisely, in hindsight, I wasn't really taking time off between jobs. I think I was taking like two days and and a weekend off between jobs. So I basically was like, I'm about to start this other job in like a week and a half, and I'm not going to start this job and then quit it. Like, I didn't want to disrespect this other news outlet in that way. So if you want me, you have a week and a half to get me. (laughs) was basically the politely worded (laughs) gist of my email. And so I guess she wanted me. We did the entire interview process in a week and a half, which is, for the times, is bananas. It's the fastest process I've ever heard anyone go through. I literally got my offer the last day at PopSci. Wow. So it became really funny because I now had to tell everyone that I was still quitting but I was now <laughs> going to a completely different outlet. Um, <laughs> and in hindsight, like there were some good parts about it because it's nice to be wanted in that way and to be courted in that way. But on the other hand, like when I look back, there were some clear red flags around institutional fit that I just like wasn't really paying attention to because I was flattered that such a quote unquote prestigious outlet wanted me. Right. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I know by this point, I mean, you hang around in media for a while, like you get, to, I know a lot of people who work at the Times at this point, and a few of them have been complete left field, like I thought they were going to exit journalism even, and then it's like, oh, they're working at the New York Times, <laughs> like total whiplash. But I would say by and large, that is not the case. So like, oh yeah, a week and a half, that's crazy. Was it something specific that had put you on their radar? It was the other thing I was going to ask. I had actually applied to the job and never heard back. That's not how they, I, I got on their radar. Like, she didn't know that I had applied at all. <laughs> I don't know what black hole my resume went into, but that's not how she found me. I later found out that, like, she was looking for new reporters. An editor on a different desk had flagged her to me because we had been on a panel together about climate change, and she thought I had said some smart things. 
Okay. That was it. And then I guess, obviously, she did some Googling and saw some of the work that I did at PopSci, which is, again, like, I mean, circling back to the cadence, like, it was really, 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 really important to me when I was at PopSci. And, you know, there were days where I was putting in 12-hour days that I not churn out garbage because I knew that the only thing I had was my work. I don't know how to say this, but, like, an editor can tell when you're doing a World Turtle Day story, they can tell that you're tired, but it's not garbage. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right? Like there's a difference between like, oh, like there's a beast that needs to be fed. And this is one of the ones that were meant to feed the beast. But it doesn't take away from like your skill as a reporter and other things, if that makes any sense. And then there are kinds of stories that you can do that really kind of undermine your whole body of work. And so it's really important to not do that second category, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Sloppy or yeah. Yeah. I've, I mean, I've totally been in that position where you're at a certain point in your career And like every clip is kind of very important to you because like if you get fired from this job, like my clips are what will keep me warm at night or or what will find me that next job. They're like, so they each one really matters. And I think I've finally started to get to the point where I can chill out a little bit um, on that. But uh, it's almost it's kind of helpful early on, even if it can be a little bit stressful. Yeah. Yeah. So I think my last day at PopSci was late October. It was right before Halloween. And I think I started the Times mid-November. I mean, the Times, uh, it's the Times where you totally like gaga, goo-goo-eyed for it, where you like, I don't know, the best way to describe it. It's a lot. It's like a lot of the things when you don't know anything about journalism and you're like a kid. It's like the one in the movies and stuff like that. Would you say you were very enamored with that? I was really excited. My parents... You know, English is not their first language. The Times Weekend Edition was like one of the papers that my parents would subscribe to to make sure that like we had things in the house that we could read. (laughs) 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 And like I knew that they'd done like incredible graphics reporting. I knew that I was never going to have to put another photo in a story again because they had photo editors. (laughs) Like I knew that they were really well resourced. And I think going back to your point, like one of the biggest differences I think with science journalism, especially is that science journalism is this microcosm of the journalism world. And it's a little bit nerd core. Again, New York is a big city. I knew its reputation as an institution, kind of what you're alluding to. I didn't know sort of its reputation within journalism and the experiences that a lot of journalists, especially women, especially women of color had had with that institution. So I was going in very, very, naive, if you will. Yeah. And I remember I first talked to you when I was applying to that, that aforementioned black hole. I sent my resume (laughs) to the times once and I was like, Oh, I'll talk to a bunch of climate reporters at this time. And it actually wasn't you, but another one who said a quote to me, the times is not always the most humane place to work. (laughs) Or it was like a very like, Oh, okay. Like, you know, I I feel that way about, you know, behind the scenes, nothing is ever as good as it seems often in journalism. And like, yeah, in many ways, journalism jobs can be inhumane. But, you know, it kind of gave me hinted at some of the issues I, I imagine you're talking about. And I also did talk to you at the time. So so how how did things go? You were doing specifically 
climate science, is that right? I was mostly tasked with doing like science stories and I was on the climate desk. So they have a science desk, but they also have a standalone climate desk. And I was on the climate desk, not the science desk. And so I was doing sort of science news stories and then I was doing features. And then, you know, there was, I call it climate season, which is out there are a lot of climate linked disasters that often happen sort of late May through like early October. And so it's like keeping an eye on those as well. And on paper, it was great. In reality, I think I cried for the first time in public three months into my job. Oh, wow. And I'm not a crier. <laughs> like, I have friends who've known me for a decade who've never seen me cry. And I have colleagues who've seen me sob. So, yeah, that wasn't great. It's just, I think it is a healthy environment for very few people. And I think if it is an environment that you find healthy, there's probably something pathologically wrong with you. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm not going to ask you to cut that because I think people should know. You know, like I said, I know a few people at the Times and I do think they're very good at making people seem like stars and completely hiding how the sausage is made. It is a very top-down and it's a very hierarchical institution. It's a very editor-run institution. It is a place where editors don't like to be told they're wrong, even when they're wrong. And I'm not saying this in a... I know better than you kind of way, but a really good example is this was during hurricane season. I can't remember if it was 2018 or 2019, but I really feel like Hurricane Florence was in 2018 and it was involving Hurricane Florence. And it was a story that I was I had started. I mean, there were many things wrong with the story, like with the way this story played out. But like the part that I really want to hone in on is because of the storm, they'd gotten a disproportionate amount of rain. Because of the rain, a coal ash pond, which is a coal ash pond is when you have a coal-fired plant. Think about like when you have a fire. So like you have a fire in a fire pit or a fireplace, you get all that soot and ash afterwards. The same thing happens when you burn coal. When you or I like burn charcoal in our barbecue grill, we like shove it out of the grill and we put it in a trash can and we put it in the garbage. But you can't do that with a coal-fired plant because that waste is toxic to the way a normal person would think of. And so the way that many coal plant store that waste is in they dig a giant pond they fill it with water and then they put the ash in this pond there are many problems with this um (laughs) that like i've written about lots of people have written about we can google it later but one particular problem is that if you get an extreme rainfall event these ponds can flood and often because they're ponds the only thing kind of holding them in is dirt so even if the pond doesn't flood because too much water is in the earthen berms that are kind of keeping them in can sort of melt away and collapse. And that's what had happened in this one collage pond in North Carolina in 2018. It was a breaking story, so like you're constantly updating it. And in my first version of the story, I noted that the river, which I believe was the Cape Fear River, was a drinking water supply. It was a deliberate choice because in order for a river to be a drinking water supply, it has to be a relatively significant water source. <laughs> like it has to be substantial. And so it was a way of sort of illustrating that it was like a significant body of water that this coal ash was pouring into. But I made a deliberate decision not to say that it was imperiling drinking water supplies because I didn't know where the intake was. And for people who are not super technical, what this basically means is you pull water out of a river to put it into a a reservoir or to like put it into a water treatment facility to turn it into tap water. Fine. If the coal ash is happening above that intake, then yes, it can imperil the drinking water supply. If it's happening below the intake because rivers flow in one direction, then it's not imperiling the drinking water supply. You're pulling the water out before the pollution is coming in, is the easiest way to think of it. 
So in kind of one of the last versions of the story to go in, an editor had changed it to imperiling the drinking water supplies. And I wasn't even supposed to be working. At that point, it was like the story was supposed to be handed over to another reporter. And I was like moved from first byline to second byline. I was supposed to go home. This other reporter was supposed to take care of it. But this other reporter was not a climate reporter. He was just on scene in North Carolina. He wasn't an environment. So I, so it felt like my baby. I was the one that had flagged it. I didn't want to let it go. So I emailed the editor, who wasn't on climate. I should say that. This wasn't on climate. And the editor called me back, and they were like, I don't understand what you're saying. And I'm like, what I'm saying is it's not imperiling the drinking water supply. And she's like, well, it could, couldn't it? And I never forget this because it completely changed how I talked to editors after this. And I was like, sure. If somehow magically the river manages to flow backwards 20 miles, yeah, I guess it could happen. <laughs> and she was like, cool, we're going to run with it. <laughs> they only changed it when people on Twitter started calling them out, saying that they hate the coal company but that this was scaring people for no reason. A professor emailed me to tell me this is wrong, and I just forwarded on because I had tried to warn her. And that is in many ways, I think, encapsulates the rigidity and the how top-down it is and how unwilling people are to actually listen and how change only comes when there's like a public outcry, a sufficient public outcry from outside. And I was like, this is a very small... <laughs> like, like, this is a very... Like, there's a right and a wrong here. This isn't like... I have feelings about this. This isn't like, there isn't gray here. It's factual, yeah. (laughs) And yet. (laughs) And yet. Yeah, wow. And, I mean, I imagine I know how the rest of that story goes. Eventually they correct it because of people complaining, and but otherwise it doesn't get mentioned. It doesn't, nothing happens. Nothing happens over the long term. There's no idea that they should fix their processes, nothing. And so... I remember right before I quit, I think this was February 2020, I remember going to a union rep and sort of being like, I don't have to be here. And this is, I think, the fundamental flaw of the Times, which is it is very in love with itself as an institution. (laughs) And so with very limited exceptions, they don't find it threatening if their employees leave. If you leave, it's because you can't hack it. If you leave, it's because you weren't really Timesian. It's not because there's something wrong with the institution that needs correcting. It's because you weren't made of the right stuff. And so I said this to my, a union rep, and the rep was like, you know, there are a lot of people here who are miserable. If you have a better offer, you should take it. And I was like, cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going to leave. And I remember I, I had this one meeting Right before that happened, that meeting with the union rep, I'd had this one meeting with my manager at the time. And I remember walking on the meeting and I immediately started texting friends. And I was like, I can't be here anymore. And so I started interviewing with a couple of publications. And Gimlet was the first one to say yes. And also, the vibes were right. I liked what they were trying to do. They were trying to do something new and, and innovative. It was an opportunity to build something kind of from the ground up, but within an institution that had resources, so it didn't feel like we were going to have to be, like, scrappy in that way. And they built a team of really (laughs) lovely people, which I cannot articulate enough. It's, like, the thing that I now look for more than anything else is, like, are these people nice, and will they make me crazy? (laughs) Because I don't want to be crazy, which I know is, like, not the best language, but, like, I don't know how else to articulate it. Uh, I totally get what you're saying, and I I feel the same 
way like Reuters has problems, like every publication has problems, like institutional and stuff like that. But fundamentally, I really, really like the people I work with. And like, that is what's like hard to walk away from. Even if people ask me if I work at Rutgers, (laughs) even if, you know, these types of things, you know, I fundamentally enjoy the people I work with and the work. So, yeah, I, I guess... Just to go back to the times a little bit, how, how long did you work for there in the end then? Two years, seven months. Okay, so that's a, quite a long time considering you were crying three months in. Oh, yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I imagine it wasn't just the editors. I mean, was it like quite a pressure cooker or was it like what was... There are two kind of analogies that I, I think about when I think of it. The first is like I always felt like I was doing the wrong thing. And I grew up going to Catholic school, and believe it or not, Catholic school felt less oppressive because Catholic school is very rigid, but there are a clear set of rules, and you know where the landmines are, and you know when and when you're going to like step in and outside of them. And actually, after, I don't know if I, I owned up to this several times, after I quit, I started therapy because um, I wasn't joking about it, I'm not working anywhere, that makes me crazy. And uh, at one point... My therapist was like, what is it about your old manager that was so anxiety-inducing? And I was like, I just never knew when she like was calling me or sending me a message on Slack. I was like, I never knew if I was going to get praise, if it was going to be like, oh, are you coming to this meeting? Or if it was going to be like an evisceration. Like, I just never knew what was coming. And he was like, you know, indeterminate or unpredictable punishment and praise is actually how they torture people. It's a form of torture. And that's really kind of what it felt like institutionally. It was just, it was very much like I never knew what the right thing was. And sometimes I would be getting so much criticism internally for the same exact thing that I was being praised for externally. It was very confusing. Wow. Yeah. Somebody, I heard this through word of mouth, but somebody who worked there once said that it felt like they were trying to break you down and then build you back up in their image. And I was like, I don't need anyone to break me down. Like I spent a lot of time putting this awkward <laughs> person together and I kind of, I don't know if I like her, but like she seems to work okay. <laughs> like I don't think you need to remold her in anyone's image. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the other thing? Yeah, I, I mean... Yeah, it's just hard. Like, again, I I feel like for many people to understand, like the time seems like the pinnacle outwardly, it must have seemed like you had it all. And, you know, you were at, you know, this big publication with a big name and probably followers come to you and people like really read and care about what you're writing. Like, you know, if you write something in the Times, you're going to get fucking feedback. I remember when I first talked to you, I was just confused. I'm like, oh, she got to the Times and then she's leaving like <laughs> right away. But I guess it makes a lot more sense now. Sorry to dwell on it. I know people don't always like to, you know, it sounds like it was very traumatic. Don't worry. I just had a lot of therapy. I'm mostly functional now. <laughs> That's good. That's good. And yeah, I mean, I just find that. Yeah, I don't, uh, and maybe I'll edit this out because I've had guests from the Times before. I don't always know how straight people are being with me sometimes about how things actually are. Are they still there? Many of them. One of them just out of, like, seemed to be doing 
amazing and just announced he was going to the post. And I was like, oh, interesting. So one of two things happened generally, which, well, three, but like you can't publicly disparage the Times. It's against the terms of your employment. So you get in really big trouble for it. Anyone who's still employed will not talk about difficulties within the institution because they're afraid of this policy. And they have a team who's like, job it is essentially to stock in place to find violations so it's not wow (laughs) like it's it's not like there isn't a real fear of getting caught is what i'm saying like there there is so there's that one element the other is that for certain roles within the times if you want to get promoted or whatever one of the best ways is to leave and then come back so it could be that this person maybe wanted to get promoted and they weren't so like they're leaving with the intention of like being poached back and that, that kind of fits into the third category, which is that some people who leave will continue not to disparage the times because they want to keep that door open for the ability to come back. I, however, when I left, I did not plan on like publicly talking about it. And then they published the like, Tom Cotton op-ed. And then I was like, I felt very much that this was not a door that I should keep open, that, um, that this was a bridge I should burn for my own sanity, <laughs> if that makes any sense. And so I did. But I've also, like, this is now, I worked at Into Climate, I worked at PopSci, I worked at Gimlet. The Times is my fourth newsroom. And I can honestly say, like you, you mentioned, like, all newsrooms have problems because they're all run by people and all people have problems. Are there places where I worked where I didn't like everyone? Yes. I'm not a saint. But, like, I feel like most people who are reasonable adults know the difference between a workplace that... You have to navigate around personalities. You have to navigate around people you don't like. But that's just like the reality of human interactions. You aren't mean to people. You aren't bullies to people. You know, you don't spit in someone's coffee. Nobody did that to me at the Times. But I'm just saying, like, the direct human interpersonal stuff is not why I left the Times. And the reason I left the Times, and a really good example of this is, like I said, I did not plan on talking publicly about the Times when I quit. I felt like it was going to be, like, my private secret. <laughs> or, like, or, or some or known among, like... <laughs> You know, if somebody messaged me to be like, why'd you leave? I would tell them. But I wasn't planning on, like, going big and going wide. And then they published a Tom Cotton op-ed. And a lot of my former colleagues went on Twitter and noted that the Tom Cotton op-ed made their, made um, black New York Times employees unsafe. And the reason they couched it that way it goes back to what I had said earlier about not being able to publicly disparage the Times. But if you couch it in labor terms, like, makes certain employees unsafe, then those those complaints are protected under OSHA. So you can't disparage the times, but you can complain about work conditions. I know that's like threading a very narrow needle, but that's literally why they captured it that way. And so I was like, wait, I'm working for an institution that literally doesn't care what I do as long as I like, don't disparage them. Like, because some institutions also have a rule where you can't disparage other institutions. So I was working for Gimlet, which was, is a wholly owned subsidiary of Spotify. And Spotify, like, doesn't care. <laughs> shocking and, shocking and also like didn't have employees trolling twitter to make sure that like i didn't say terrible things they care a lot about intellectual property but like i wasn't planning on sharing trade secrets because i don't have any uh, <laughs> so like not a problem and so i was like i'm actually in this really weird position where i can actually speak up i just left the new york times i think i left in either late april or early may and I think the Tom Cotton op-ed was, like, June or July. So I was like, I'm in this rare space where I've just left. So I really do know what the institution is like. Like, it hasn't completely reformed itself in the past month or so. But also, I 
I'm in an, in an organization where nobody cares what I say. So I can actually speak up. And I don't think I'll ever go back there. I don't think I should ever go back there. It wouldn't be good for me. So I'm just going to start talking truth to power and like let people know how this institution actually runs. And that was kind of like the not very careful thought process that like went into it. And at the time, I really was like, well, I hope I never get laid off because I don't think I'll be hireable at the end of this. And what I found out is that wasn't true. That or two things. The number of people who reached out to me who were either at the time, currently still at the Times, or who had left the Times to essentially thank me for giving voice to the harms that had happened to them was through the roof. Like, to the point I couldn't respond to all the messages. I, at one point, explicitly made a tweet about going to therapy after leaving the Times and how my therapist, at, at one point, my therapist's office had been quite close to the Times office. <laughs> so he had actually treated a lot of New York Times people, and I made a tweet sort of to that effect. And the number of Times people who emailed me to find out if it was my therapist was their therapist was like, a, ridiculous, and B, they had overlapping therapists. And so, like, there's literally, I joke, of a cottage industry of therapists whose sole job, it seems to be, is keeping New York Times reporters functioning. And I just don't think that, like, a workplace should be like that. I don't think it should be sending people into therapy. I don't think your job should do that to you. And I guess I don't want to dwell too much on it, but, yeah, is there anything else you think I should know about it? No, Gimlet was great, though. <laughs> I mean, up until the point I got laid off, it was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so, how, yeah, how long were you there for? Unfortunately, and this pains me so to my soul, two years, six months. I was one month shy. I, like, really, 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 really wanted to be a Gimlet for longer than I'd been at the time. So that was, like, a huge personal goal of mine. And I was robbed of it. I was robbed of my goal. <laughs> oh, no. So you get hired at Gimlet. It's a podcast. It, it was full-time, or were you freelancing too? How, how did it work? Mm-hmm. Full-time. Yeah, I mean, what was that transition like, you know, going to audio? Yeah, I strongly recommend if you're going to transition from text or print reporting to long-form narrative nonfiction podcasting, which is what we were doing at Gimlet, that it helps not to have a show. I started in May 2020, I think our working name for the show was The Climate Show. It didn't have a name. We didn't have any episodes. And we didn't have any show art. It was all like it was a month-long process of pulling that all together, which kind of gave me time to like learn how to use Pro Tools and learn like the nuts and bolts of podcasting because I wasn't immediately dumped into the deep end. And then I was, you know, really blessed to work with like Alex Bloomberg and Caitlin Kenny, who had like come from Planet Money. And so they really knew how to like, train print reporters and how to do podcasting. And then there was another kind of added in hindsight benefit, which is we started in the pandemic, so we weren't doing field reporting. And so I got to learn the technical side, like how do you cut tape and all of those things without having to really fiddle too much with like, how do you get good tape? Like that came later after we got vaccinated, we started doing more reporting outside and all that. But like by that point, I kind of knew how to cut tape. I knew how to put a story together. So I was actually just really lucky in a lot of ways to be able to learn these skills kind of sequentially. By the time you were laid off, how many shows had you done? How many episodes? And I don't know, but we were always on and we did an average of three episodes a month. And we started in September 2020. That was when we published our first episode. So three times, I don't know, somewhere around 50 or 60. 
<laughs> somewhere in that ballpark. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Cool. And yeah, I, I mean, I guess before we move on to the layoff and what you're doing now, just if there's anything else from that time you want to highlight. I mean, the thing that I really loved working at Gimlet was we were trying, we were doing this thing, which I, I'm bringing a little bit as a freelancer and sort of whatever role that I do next, which was really like one of the reasons I was so excited to join Gimlet was in addition to sort of all of the institutional issues with the times, I was also really burnt out on reporting on climate change because it, it was two and a half years of reporting about how the planet was dying (laughs) and like all of the horrors that we were seeing on the planet and sometimes listening to stories of the worst time in people's lives, right? And at Gimlet, what we were reporting on was climate solutions. And so we told you the problem, but then we also told you what people were doing to fix those problems. And this is kind of the first field reporting that I did, but I did a story on um, agrivoltaics, which is, so one of the issues with solar panels is that there isn't enough quote-unquote land for all of the solar panels that we want. Or there is, but like it gets wonky, right? But in an ideal solution, you'd be able to overlay solar panels with ag in many conditions. So either growing crops underneath them, or in this case in in upstate New York, this woman was grazing her sheep on solar land. And the reason it's great is that if the grass gets too tall, the solar panels overheat. They don't produce enough energy. And so you want to be able to keep the grass underneath them really low, but mowers can damage the equipment. Sheep don't. (laughs) <laughs> They're like, short enough? <laughs> sure. And so I like got to go out to properties that she, her sheep are on. And, you know, I got to sh- stick a microphone in a sheep's mouth. And it was delightful. It was great. <laughs> and there were so many opportunities for like delight. One of the last episodes I did was on bicycling. And this is the other thing about play. Like there was a real ethos of like, we can play. Like climate change doesn't all have to be bad. It can also be like the solutions are good. And so there's room and space to play and have a really good time. And so we all know that like, it's better for the environment to ride a bike than it is to drive or whatever. But it's so often framed like, oh, you have to eat your vegetables. You know, like riding a bike, is like eating your vegetables. And I was like, riding a bike is actually just fun. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> especially if you have like infrastructure and you're not like worried that you're going to get run over by a car. It actually is super fun. I went to a wedding last summer And at the end of the wedding, other people were like, you know, pulling up the apps to like get a car to go home. And I was like pulling up the app to find out where the closest city e-bike was, you know. And so I biked home and it was awesome because like think like having been around so many people and having, you know, had a lot of food. It just felt really good to move your body sort of at night when, you know, midnight, there were hardly any cars on the road. Um, It was like that beautiful like where the temperature is dropping and there's like just a touch of Christmas in the air, you know? And it was like 10 miles, but an e-bike, that's nothing, you know? And my my friends thought it was hilarious. They were like, you're really biking home because I was wearing a dress. And I like lifted the dress up to show that I was wearing bike shorts underneath. And they were like, oh, you can't prepare, you know? (laughs) I wanted a story that was about that, that like touched on that feeling of how wonderful and how lovely it is to ride a bike and how when bikes were conceived, they were seen as this, like there's literally a quote in the episode that I'd found where people called it the next best thing to flying and how we've lost that, like cars have taken that up. But like, think about kids and how kids think of bikes as freedom and how like everything a car can do, bikes did at first. The road trip was originally a bike thing. And so that whole episode kind of weaves that in. And at the start of the episode, I, I bring in cars by talking about how when I was a kid or a teenager, I was obsessed with this car, the Zuzu Amigo, because of the jingle. 
And the jingle is based off of the Slinky song. And it goes something like, amigo, amigo, for fun and love and joy. Amigo, amigo, it's good for a girl and a boy. (laughs) And so I got our engineer, who's like a really, is also a musician. And he made a jingle for us. And so we ended the episode with a jingle. And like that ability to be like very serious and give you like all the facts, but also... You know, there's clips from Clueless and the 40-Year-Old Virgin. I went to an adult learn-to-ride biking class, you know. <laughs> um, I found a guy who who talks a lot about, like, Dutch bicycles and how they give you the grace of a, a violinist, you know. And the whole point of that episode <laughs> is to reframe what the bicycle is in our mind and to kind of take it out of the eat-your-vegetables category. And so that was, like, being able to experiment in that way and have that kind of fun was, like, awesome. And I'm really going to miss it. Yeah, that's super cool. How long ago was that? Either August or September of last year. Okay, yeah, yeah. I remember I emailed you around that time. Stupidly emailed your Spotify email, not realizing (laughs) you wouldn't have a Spotify email anymore. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it a little bit before, but I guess to whatever extent you want to say, uh, how how did your exit go down? Um, They told me I was the worst reporter they'd ever seen, and uh, they they fired me. (laughs) No, um... Uh, they canceled our show. Um, they canceled us and a bunch of other shows at the same time. I think Crime Show got canceled. I think there, I, I can't remember now. It's been too long. I think there were four shows at Gimlet and eight at Parcast. I'm going off of news reports here. I don't have any inside information, but they canceled a bunch of shows. And we were one of the shows that they canceled. So I think my last day was maybe October 6th. And... What does one do when they get laid off? What did you do? Like, what do you, did you take time off? Were you immediately like, oh shit, I've got to find a job. How did you? No, I like, essentially because they were canceling several shows that day, they told us, you know, to please wait till end of day before we said anything, you know, outside of our little show. And uh, I think at like five or six, I don't, whatever time it was, I was like, I think this is end of day. And so I went on Twitter and I was like, Because at that point, like, several news outlets had already broken the news. And, like, even a reporter had even called me. And I was like, A, why is this news? I mean, it's news, but I was just very weird. I was like, I don't know what you think I'm going to (laughs) say. Like, I was just very confused. I was like, (laughs) I don't know. I just felt very weird about it. But um, actually getting a call, like, 30 minutes after you've just gotten laid off really gave me... Like, I've never done the kind of reporting where you, like, knock on someone's door after, like they just lost a loved one or something, but it did give me a little bit of insight of like, A, what do you think I have to offer you? (laughs) And B, like, it very much feels like you're cashing in on like, not the worst day of my life, but certainly not the best day of my life. (laughs) Like, it's a shock that I like kind of want to process a little bit. So I went on Twitter that afternoon, like end of day, and I was like, the rumors are true, essentially. Or like, yeah, you know, How to Save a Planet was one of the shows that were canceled. I don't have a job. And then a Luckily, and I'm, you know, knock on wood, I'm very blessed. All of that work has built a reputation. Several people reached out and wanted to have conversations about jobs. And again, being very blessed, I was like in a position where I didn't really, I mean, obviously I'm not, God willing, I wish I was independently wealthy. I do need a job. You know, like, it's not like I never need to work again. But I was in a place where I could just be like, you know what I'm going to do? Nothing. I'm going <laughs> And so um, <laughs> I didn't. I think I started taking conversations a little bit in mid-November. But they were like the beginning of conversations. I I mean, when I say nothing, I had one story that we were working on in collaboration with the city, a publication called The City, not The City of New York, I just realized. Gotcha. Then um, I was able to work because they're they're not 
with Gimlet. I was able to work on sort of on the side with them and we got that published. And then I did nothing for a bunch of weeks. It was awesome. I watched a lot of TV. I like really deep cleaned my apartment. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even read anything about climate really. I didn't, I, I completely vegged out. I did some hiking People were like, oh, are you going to travel? And I was like, why would I do that? Like, what part of this makes you think I actually want to get up off the couch? Like, no. Like, you know, I took maybe a week between the times and Gimlet. I'd been working very hard for a number of years. And even when I was at Gimlet, because I was working in audio, when I was at Gimlet, I was kind of freelancing the entire time. You know, not actually, yeah, I was going to say not big thematic pieces, but that's a lie. I did a 4,000-word piece for tech review uh, (laughs) on the side. So, um, yeah, I'd been, you know, doing some print freelance because I didn't want to lose that skill set and I didn't want people to think of me as only an audio reporter. So it was really important for me to keep doing print stuff. And so when I got laid off, I was just sort of like, no, I'm not doing anything for a while. And I didn't. So (laughs) I don't know if this is great timing or whatever, but like I got laid off early October. I like only started having conversations in mid-November and then Thanksgiving came. (laughs) So nobody wanted to hear from me anyway. And then I did a little bit of, like, conversation in early December. And then, like, the Christmas holidays and New Year's came, so nobody wanted my emails anyway. I did a little bit of pitching in December, but I didn't really have any deadlines or anything that I really had to produce until January. Gotcha. And the question then is what happens next? I mean, is freelancing the direction you're going to go in? Or is it if a job comes along? Or what's, what's your plan? Yeah, so my plan is to find a millionaire to marry. Um, my phone number is no. Um, (laughs) yeah. So basically my plan is I'm hoping to start a new job in early to late spring and then kind of take this time to hammer out some weird, big thematic projects that are like maybe harder to do in a newsroom. Because one of the other things with how to save a planet, which I loved in many, many, many ways, but we had a very specific mandate, which is climate solutions right? And systemic climate solutions. So we weren't doing a lot of like, use a reusable grocery bag or whatever, like, (laughs) right. And that meant there were a lot of stories that like, I couldn't do. Again, not a complaint, just like the reality. And so like, there are a bunch of stories that have been sort of bouncing around in my brain, and just getting that muscle back. So like the plan is to do a little bit of freelancing, but like, the goal is to get a job. Gotcha. Health insurance is expensive. I don't know if you remember. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, my biggest thing with, I remember going to some freelance seminar is like, your taxes just must be so fucking complicated. So I guess, I don't know, my first year at Gimlet, I hired a financial planner for the first time ever. I was like trying to be an adult. And she's like, okay, make a checking account that is just for your freelance expenses. And then use an accounting software for your invoicing. And it works. I got zero, which is an accounting software, and it syncs with my freelance bank account. And so every time I spend money, everything that, like, is a freelance expense, like I have a P.O. box, I pay for zero. It all goes to this, like, one checking account that I don't ever spend normal money on. And then it, you just run a report in zero, and you hand that to your accountant, and it makes life so much easier. <laughs> no, that's the kind of banal detail that I know is actually going to be useful to some of the people who listen to this who are trying to figure things out. Um, So that's good to know. Next, let's move on to talk about some stories, if that's all right with you. Sure. So it's only two questions. 
And the first question, because it's better to start on the downer and end on the happier one, is what is a story that got away? So a story you wanted to do, and for whatever reason, it didn't pan out. You couldn't convince an editor, you couldn't get the key interview, you couldn't do whatever, whatever comes to mind. So the story that I, I was thinking about with this question is, um, so Minnesota tracks data on who falls through lakes in winter. And it would be a really good climate proxy. And I really wanted to do a story. I wanted to do something with that data. But I went down this rabbit hole because it would require a level of math that I just don't have. Or I'd have to, like, team up with a professor. Because you only fall through the ice under specific conditions. When the winter is too warm, the the lake doesn't freeze. So nobody tries to snowmobile on on water. (laughs) Like, that's not a thing. And when, obviously, when the winter is cold enough... People don't fall through because it's cold enough. So you only get people falling through at a disproportionate rate when it is cold enough to freeze, but not sufficiently cold enough to hold the weight of like a vehicle or a person. And that's like a really narrow condition. And I was just like, ah, like it would be such like, you can like think of the visual visuals, like it would be such a cool, neat, contained story, except the data just doesn't work in that way. Uh, Yeah, I'm from, uh, or my folks are all in Minnesota. I am from Wisconsin. So yeah near to my heart. <laughs> have you fallen through a lake? <laughs> no, no, thankfully. I have walked on a few frozen lakes in my life and uh I am too scared to to risk it in a nippy situation. <laughs> like uh, like I'm scared enough when it's frozen solid. But uh yeah, no, like my parents live on a lake now and there are always people going out in weird situations like should they be driving their truck on this <laughs> lake, you know, in this weather like well, that's how else, I mean, you got to drive your truck out to go ice fishing, right? That's how it works. Exactly. Yeah. People setting up you know, whole miniature houses out there and stuff. And then uh, the other question is a story you're proud of. If you can take a story you're proud of, tell us what it's about and also give us a little bit about the story behind the story. Sure. So there are a bunch of stories that I'm proud of, but in general, the conception and sort of execution of those stories is kind of boring or very straightforward. It's just not that interesting to tell. But one of the stories that I'm really proud of, and that is also an interesting story to tell, and I think about it a lot when thinking about reporting memos for trips, is that trip I took to Myanmar for 538 about like this massive landslide that hit. And the reason that I think about this story all the time is, as I alluded to earlier, I could afford a fixer when I was down. No, this wasn't in Myanmar, sorry. This was in, in India. This was in Leh in the Himalayas. And I couldn't afford a fixer. The only way to get a fixer was I would have to have hired one down in Delhi and then paid for them to come up to lay and take me around. And it was just too cost prohibitive. And so I landed in lay, which is beautiful, by the way, like it is stunningly, stunningly beautiful. And the only thing I had was the name of a guest hotel I'd gotten from a source and the name of a monk, um, no, a nun, a Buddhist nun <laughs> that I'd also gotten from the same source. That was it. And so I was just sort of like, how am I going to tell this story? <laughs> like, I was just like so ill-prepared. And so I think it was like the first or the second day that I was there, I met these Swiss tourists at our guest house. And we decided to have breakfast together. And they were like, what are you doing here? And they were just like tourists. And they were like, what are you doing here? And I was like telling them 
being like very transparent that I like had no idea what I was doing <laughs> and very certain that I was like going to spend a week in this town and then leave with no story. And they were immediately like, oh, you should go and talk to this dude. He knows everybody in town. Because he, um, so the big thing with Lay is um, it's huge with Trekker tre- because it's like, it's in the Himalayas. It's like the last town that you can kind of fly into, but you can only fly in in the morning because later in the day, the winds are too high and they will blow you into the mountains, which is always really reassuring to read on the plane <laughs> while you're <laughs> flying in. And I went to him and I was like, hey, I, you know, I want to talk about this big event. And he turns to me and he's like, and it, it actually worked out perfectly because he spoke English because he, was a, he ran a trekking company and a lot of trekkers, even if English isn't their first language, it's one of their languages. So it was like, perfect. He could speak English. I didn't need a translator. It was like, okay, I've already won. And he's like, if you want to talk to someone about this incident, you should talk to me. He is like, it destroyed my home. He had this story that was, I think, really incredibly salient at putting a face on what was at risk. And so essentially what had happened in Lay is that there had been a heat wave in Europe, and that heat wave, essentially that pattern of atmospheric waves, had trapped air over India, or shifted air over India. So the monsoon rains landed in places where they traditionally aren't supposed to land. Lay normally gets something like 2.5 inches of rain a year, and they got something like, it's been a while since I looked at the story, but they got something like a foot of rain in an hour or in a day. Like it was just like a tremendous amount of rain. Wow. And this isn't an area where there are a lot of trees because it's so high elevation and it's so dry. And so there was nothing to hold that water back. And in the case of my source, what ended up happening was all of this water came gushing down. It's not just water. It's bad enough it was just water, but you end up getting rocks and mud. And in this case, a boulder came loose and landed on his home. And he was running a guest home at the time. So he had guests in the guest home. He had to, like, get the guests out. His wife was five months pregnant at the time. He had to get his wife out. Whoa. And it ended up killing his uncle. Damn. And then it was, like, the beginning of winter. It was, like, sort of the edge season. And they ended up having to spend the next year sort of living in the hollowed-out shell of what remained of their home. And so it was, like, this complete coincidental meeting that I never would have found this guy if, like, this handful a Swiss tourist, <laughs> if I hadn't like agreed to breakfast with these Swiss tourists, but they ended up connecting me to a man who not only became a huge part of my story, but because he ran a trekking company, he had guides and it was the end of trekking season, which was accidental on my part. I, I couldn't, but I couldn't have timed it better. Didn't have a lot of work to do. So they agreed to take me around. Like I would pay them. And because they're guides, they spoke English and they would take me around to sort of the villages around and to speak to some of the older people to ask if they'd ever seen something like this before. So I was able to get more color character in that way because he ran a trekking company. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's very unlucky for him, obviously, and terrible, but like considering you went in not knowing if you'd get a story at all. And to leave with this like wildly compelling story was just like it it reminded me again about sort of like the the buddhist idea of the beginner mind and they if i'd gone in with like this very rigid sense of the story that i wanted i never would have gotten that story and what was interesting is after that i started just being more transparent with people who like spoke english not that i'd like been hiding it before but i'd i was a little bit protective i think as a journalist like trying not to show my cards too much and i remember the region is famous for these kind of fun pants. And so I was in the shop buying pants for <laughs> my sister to take home to her. And the shopkeeper was like, what are you doing here? And I told him, and he proceeded 
to tell me this entire story of his experience of this rain event and how when he got to the village center, they were laying bodies in the village center. And one of the things he told me, he was like, you know, they were laying Christian bodies next to Buddhist bodies next to Muslim bodies, which in that part of the world is a sign that like, of how big of a trauma that was, right? Like, cause this lays sort of on the border with Kashmir and it's like, it's not as tenuous as Kashmir, but it's like kind of like in an area that is like borderline tenuous. Does that make any sense? And that ended up becoming a detail in the story. And I never would have gotten that if I'd sort of just been like, coy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And at that point, because I didn't go into it with a plan and because I didn't really know what I was doing, I'd spent a lot of time just like walking around the town and walking around the square. So like when he told me where they were putting the bodies, I was like, oh, I, I know that place. And he had like pictures on his phone. He was showing me of like, not bodies, but like the damage that had happened. And something that I've noticed both in India, and I've been to New Orleans a couple of times, is that people who have gone through really bad trauma, if you're just open and not necessarily invasive, it's not that far below the surface for a lot of people. And sometimes people just want to tell you their stories. Not always, but like if you're just open to enough people... (laughs) You find people who want to tell you their stories and it feels less extractive because you're not like forcing someone to retell the worst moments of their lives. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, that was that story. Yeah, wow. That's incredible. And and yeah, uh, the other thing I was going to ask about that earlier when you mentioned 538 why was 538 interested in this story? I mean, they're kind of known for being about like stats and polling and all that. I mean, I don't know. The editor I was working with at the time, funnily enough, was Blythe Terrell, who's now at Gimlet. Um, so <laughs> okay. you would have to ask her. I Actually, I don't know. They do have a science vertical, so that might be why. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That would make sense. And yeah, I'll throw up a link to that and a link to some of the other stories you mentioned so people can look for that in uh, the podcast description if they want to know more. Cool. Uh, Okay. I guess then, if it's all right with you, we'll move on to the lightning round, which is faster-paced questions. Um, Do you feel ready? Yep, I'm ready. The first question is about a publication in the area of what you cover so I guess in this case, it'd be about climate that you think does a good job, but most people don't know and deserves a shout out. Most non-climate reporters, let's put it that way. Yeah, I feel like this is like patting myself on the back because it's where I interned, but inside climate news. What is a publication that you read, listen to, or watch for fun? Vaguely journalistic in nature. Uh, John Oliver. I know, basic answer, but I don't care. I love that show. <laughs> Sure, sure. And then more specific, what is the best journalistic article piece, again, whatever medium that you have consumed recently? Yeah, the one that I saw today actually will make you angry, but it is really good. It's this ProPublica story called We're Still Gonna Say No Inside United Healthcare's Effort to Deny Coverage to Chronically Ill Patients. It is so, 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 so good. It is just, like, so good about, like, we spend so much money on health insurance, and they just say no. Is there any particular subject matter you geek out about that isn't related to your job? 
hating mayonnaise. <laughs> you geek out about that? Oh, yeah. I wrote a whole story for Popular Science called Mayonnaise is Disgusting and Science Agrees. I found a food science researcher who quantified that around 20% of people worldwide hate mayonnaise, and he doesn't understand why it's a default on anything. <laughs> but why is it in some way disgusting in a like hygiene sort of way or what i just i think it's vile it's not food it smells terrible it tastes terrible it's got a horrible texture like i don't understand why people insist on shoving it on everything as somebody who's gonna probably eat a tuna well a fake i'm a vegetarian a fake meat tuna fish sandwich after this it's gonna have a lot of mayonnaise have you ever tried taking your fake meat tuna and mixing it with a little bit of olive oil, a little bit of lemon, maybe a sprinkle of truffle oil, some capers. I haven't thought about that, but yeah, I actually have some truffle oil, so that sounds like worth a try. It would be way better. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like if they sneak even a little bit of it in there, you know it's I there. Will, I will spit it. I will spit it out into your face. <laughs> <laughs> Some extreme views on mayonnaise. You heard it here first, <laughs> folks. <laughs> it's on my Twitter bio. It's in my professional bio. Okay. <laughs> Literally, like. <laughs> That's funny. If you had to trade places with one journalist living or dead and you would have their career, who would it be? So I thought about this question and I feel like this is a version of the time machine question, which is like, Traveling in time as a black woman is generally not something we want to do unless you want to go really far back in time. And in general, at the risk of sounding like egotistical, I like where I'm at. I have interesting ideas from stories. I get to work with cool editors and cool publications. People know my work, but like nobody knows who I am. I have no desire to be famous. <laughs> you know? And I don't really spend a lot of time thinking about other people's career. I know that sounds really weird, but any you just go, but like, it's the truth. Like, I'm reasonably content. Sure, sure. Sometimes I think about like leaning on the if you had to, but I won't force you. <laughs> um, it, it's more about like uh, a novel way to shout out a journalist you admire or something like that. Got it. What is one thing most people don't know about you? Because mayonnaise hating is very public already. Very so public. Neat. And so is bear sex. <laughs> <laughs> you going to explain that one? Or? Oh, yeah. I went to Alaska in the summer of 2019. I went to a bear sanctuary. And uh, even though it was sort of the wrong time of the year, we got to see two bears having sex. And I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> and I took a photo. I took a lot of photos. I have a lot of photos of these bears having sex. <laughs> and I learned a lot about bear not just sex, but also the female bears have delayed implantation. So like if the egg gets fertilized, they don't immediately implant it in their, what is it, their cervix or whatever, because they need to get enough food for the summer huh. because they deliver while they're hibernating. And so if they haven't gotten enough food over the summer, then their body just reabsorbs the egg. And so one day I was having kind of a grumpy day at work, if you shall. And I went on Twitter and I got the genius idea of tweeting the photo of bear sex with the line. <laughs> I think I said something like, I saw bear sex, and then just like tweeted it with the photo. And then underneath it, I was like, might delete later. And Michael Mann, <laughs> the noted climate scientist, I should say, screen capped my tweet, 
quote tweeted me and saying it will live forever. And then I had the <laughs> awkward situation of having to wonder if it ran afoul of my newsroom's social media guidelines and having to turn <laughs> to my um, direct manager and saying, um, I tweeted something and I just think you should know. And then I told her and having her burst out laughing <laughs> and learning that it is okay to tweet literal pictures of bears having sex. It is fine. <laughs> and then I made it my Twitter banner photo because I just think it's funny. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm going to go back and look now. I'm sure I've seen it and might have just not processed that it was bear sex. Yeah. And every so at. often somebody will like, because on Twitter you don't generally go to someone's profile page. But every so often someone will, and then they'll just like tweet at me. And they're like, is your profile bears having sex? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a little way of spicing up other people's lives. The next one is what is the coolest or weirdest or strangest place or situation your job has taken you? I like to refer to this one as a pinch me. I can't believe this is my job type of moment that you couldn't believe it had taken you there okay so i have two i can't decide so the first one which i think falls closer to this narrative is i got to fly in a zero g airplane like also known as the vomit comet with um (laughs) (laughs) astronaut scott kelly for a story and i did not throw up oh nice also he used dramamine and i did not just throwing that out there wow so i don't know which one of us is tougher if he's listening, you are. You're, you're, t- you're tougher for sure. Hardcore. You should have been a jet pilot. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one that I think is more dramatic is was when I was in Myanmar going to Hakka. The way that you get to Hakka, like I told you earlier, is you fly into this town called Cali, and then you take a bus that should take like two hours based on mileage, but takes closer to 10 to 14. So when I was going up, I made a mistake. I landed in Cali on Saturday thinking I could catch a bus on Sunday, but because Chin is Christian, they don't work on Sunday, so the buses don't run on Sunday. So the earliest you can go up is on Monday. That's when the buses start running again. Everyone warned me the roads were bad. I didn't know they were this bad. I don't know if it's changed, but at the time, it was generally not a good idea to take the roads on a Monday because they didn't work on Sunday. The roads hadn't been maintained. And they were in such a state of disrepair that they kind of need a low level of maintenance all of the time. So when I took the bus up on Monday, and when I say bus, it's like a mini bus. I think it fit 14 of us, maybe. I'd have to look back. So as we were going up into the mountains, so you go up to 6,000 feet, I think, and then you go back to sea level, and then you go back up to 6,000 feet. And at some point, our bus hits a pothole pretty badly. It gets stuck. And the road is so narrow, it's actually two lanes, but because it's suffering from all of this degradation from the extreme rain and also because they had done a lot of logging in their region. So like that combination and the fact that it's literally a road on the side of a mountain, those factors were really taxing on the road. And so what should have been two lanes across was really one and a half. And so when we got stuck, nobody else who wasn't on a motorcycle essentially could get past us. So somebody found a rope and managed to tow the bus out and it's like, great, we're going to keep going. And the whole time the bus is like, Boom, 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 boom. They're moving up and down because the road is so rocky, right? And I'm texting with my friend who, I think he was in South Sudan at the time. He was doing um, guinea worm eradication, maybe. He was either in South Sudan or Tanzania. So the entire time I'm texting him, just sort of letting him know what's going on because of the time change. He's one of my few friends who's still awake. And 
I finally am able to nod off because at a certain point, your body can only handle so much stress. And so I'm like nodding off, I'm nodding off and I'm out. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm asleep. <laughs> like I'm just going to own it. And I wake up because people are screaming and it turns out that at some point when we hit that pothole, it broke something in the bus. And so remember we're on the side of the mountain and the road is turning to the right, but the bus can't turn right. So we're going straight off the mountain, which is why people were rightly screaming. I kind of wish they weren't because I could have slept through my death. But <laughs> unfortunately, they were awake and screaming. They couldn't turn right, and apparently the normal brake wasn't working. But because of that part of the world, they drive manual. He was able to downshift enough to get us to stop like a foot from the edge of the cliff. Jesus. But the bus was done. <laughs> The bus was finished. He was like, <laughs> I don't know how you're getting the haka, but like, <laughs> it's not on me. And I had luckily met this woman who spoke English and had spent time in India. So she had sort of loosely adopted me as a curiosity. And she was able to flag down. I'll never forget it. It was like a forerunner or something, but it had Jesus fish in the back, you know? She was able to flag down this SUV and we hopped in and he drove us the rest of the way to Hakka. But I remember the whole week that I was there, I sort of like, I live here now. Like, there's no way I'm getting back on that road, you know? Yeah, wow. But I did. I got back on the road. And then I ended up writing an essay for Sierra. And it was one of those ones where it just comes out of you. Like, you didn't write the essay. The essay wrote you. But yeah, that was like, it was a lot. And then I still haven't told my parents about it. (laughs) (laughs) There are certain things that the adults in your life don't need to know. (laughs) Sure. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. Near-death experience. What is your favorite film, book, TV, or other piece of media about journalists and why? If you want to read a book, it is very dated. And it is in a style that is in some ways a little sexist and a little racist, which is ironic given the subject matters it's addressing. But um, The Girls in the Balcony, which is about the women who sued the New York Times for gender discrimination, is actually an interesting read. And was super useful to me. Cool. I haven't heard about that one. Yeah. It's of its time. So like there's huge caveats with like characters are described as like having a fiery Irish personality. Like it is, (laughs) it is (laughs) Yeah. like I'm, I'm caveating it in that way, which is like, was not written with modern sensibilities in mind. If you accept that, what they're actually saying is useful. Yeah. It's like, uh, I don't know if you've ever read Scoop, but uh, since I interview a lot of foreign correspondents, some people answer that. And I read Scoop in a book club with some people and everybody's like, not sure because it's satire, if it's like racist, sexist and terrible, or if it's being satirical. Um, I'm confused about that to this day. So (laughs) I don't know. There's also, um, oh God, what is that book? This one I deliberately did not finish. I need to go back to it. I did not finish it because at the time I was working for the Times and I was like, if I finish this, I need to quit. And so it's like, <laughs> I can't quit until I have another job lined up. But it's buried by the Times about the, how the Times kind of deliberately obscured the Holocaust for its readers. Hmm. The last question then is qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? A script writer? Like, For feature films. Sure. That's a good one. Okay. Well, uh, 
that's all the questions. So I guess I'll just wrap up by saying uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Kendra. Thanks so much for having me. And hopefully, you know, this was useful to someone. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Kendra Pierre-Lewis, a freelance climate change reporter. I'll post links to some of the things Kendra talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like this episode of Foreign Correspondence, please subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode in a couple of weeks. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.